Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. This week's interview guest is Meg Linehan of The Athletic. A quick reminder, if you like the podcast, it would really help us if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. It helps people find us, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Onward! Our guest today is Meg Linehan, the dynamite writer for The Athletic covering women's soccer. She's in Houston right now covering the Women's Olympic Qualifying Tournament. Meg, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I didn't realize I was getting upgraded to dynamite, so that's a good way to start out a Wednesday morning. I don't use the dynamite very often, Meg, so (laughs) I mean it. You're doing great stuff. You have for for a while now, but um, just some, some really standout articles uh, lately, really enjoyed the one you wrote on Megan Rapino at the end of the year with some personal reflections, um, and and others too, like the the one about the NWSL draft of Sky Blue inside that whole process. Um, I think readers out there uh, who want to see this type of coverage on a regular basis of women's soccer are finally getting that opportunity. So thank you as one of those readers. I appreciate that. I know, you know, I think it is kind of an interesting time for women's soccer. And I've been around the game, you know, as, as in that Megan Rapinoe piece, like I go back all the way to 2009 and, and watching her play in person. So it's been not just like a journey for me personally, but really a journey for the sport. And it's been really interesting to, to see it from multiple angles over that time period. And I definitely do later in the podcast want to get into a little bit on on your story and how you got to this point. Um where you're writing for the athletic covering the sport here, but for right now, wanted to jump in. We are mm-hmm. we are speaking on uh, Wednesday morning uh, after last night's uh, U.S. victory against Haiti in the opener of the uh, Women's Olympic qualifying tournament for nothing, uh, which doesn't really give an accurate indication. I think of this was a harder game than expected uh, for the U.S. Uh, what were some of the big thoughts that came out of this game for you? Yeah, I think, you know, it was interesting because I think a lot of us were looking at Haiti as kind of not necessarily an unknown, but perhaps, you know, the general idea was, okay, they're going to they're gonna roll through Olympic qualifying, right? Like this has always kind of been the United States relationship with CONCACAF qualifying in general is that the group stage tends to be a little a little rough in terms of some of those score lines. Um, kind of the earlier version of the USA-Thailand in the World Cup. But Canada had just drawn 81-1, one, 
mm-hmm. in the match. And everybody's kind of looking at that and going, okay, well, is that a reflection of where Canada is? Is that a reflection of where Haiti is? It's unclear. And then that first half, I just, the mood in the press box was a very interesting one because it just was, was extremely uncharacteristic, I think, of the U.S. national team. And I think after the game, there's just kind of the sense of, okay, that wasn't us. But also, you know, it's the first game of the year. We're not necessarily in form. A few people are definitely carrying, it seems like, minor injuries to some extent. Tobin he didn't play, Megan Rapinoe coming off the bench. So I think that there's just kind of this, I don't want to say acceptance of, okay, we're going to just set that game aside and it was a fluke. But there was kind of like a, listen, we know. No one's happy with that match, but also like don't use that as some sort of uh, measuring stick as to where this team actually is right at the moment. Yeah, I, I think the it's only one game qualifier is probably useful mm-hmm. to throw out here probably, but I do feel like Carly Lloyd is a player right now who is a bit under the microscope. Uh, Alex Morgan mm-hmm. not being a part of this tournament, she's pregnant. Uh, Carly Lloyd getting an opportunity to start at center forward in place of Morgan. And Carly Lloyd has talked a lot in the last year about feeling like she deserved to be a starter. Um, Presumably that means her on the field as a starter in place of someone else, uh, Mm -hmm. though she hasn't always specified that. Um, and, and, And I guess, you know, I'm wondering from your perspective, and this was just one game, we've seen Carly Lloyd start a couple of games under Vlad Komandonovsky, how do you think the team plays differently with Lloyd in that position compared to how it plays when Morgan is in that position? Yeah, I mean, I think it's two very different roles. I mean, Alex Morgan, I mean, we saw it in the World Cup. Like, she basically sacrificed her body in order yeah. to set up her teammates. So it really, I think what they ask of Alex Morgan is not necessarily to be like that kind of poacher as a center forward type of player, whereas with Carly, it's really an expectation of if we put you in the right situations, we expect that you will finish these chances. And, and I think that was kind of what we saw last night in terms of the, the number of shots that she got. Um, you know, obviously the finishing wasn't there until the final goal, which like you could tell was just kind of pure, like if I miss this one, <laughs> it's not like I'm going to be extremely frustrated with myself. And I, I think we could even see from the body language after she scored that goal, of just like finally, right? Like finally one connected. So um, I, I do think that it is two very different systems in terms of Morgan was asked to be a very kind of unselfish player in the, the front line three under Jill Ellis. And Carly's kind of got a very different expectation under Vlaco. And, you know, I think that she is under a microscope also to back up those words with performances. I don't think she's going to be satisfied with last night's game either. But also, again, you know, it is the one game system. I think also having Lynn Williams in for the match um, also kind of, you know, we're not necessarily seeing whatever this front line is going to look like by the time this team hits a, a major tournament later in the summer. So, with Carly, it's also interesting just because, you know, I think that as a as an elite athlete, I'm kind of fascinated by her approach. Like, in theory, the way that she talks about what she wants her role to be and her own excellence and her own expectations for herself and, and what will come of those expectations is everything that we should, in theory, want from a professional athlete. And then the way that it gets received is always kind of a different thing. 
And I don't know how to reconcile those two things really, but I do, I find it very interesting that she's willing to talk about it, knowing that it's probably not going to get the reception that she expects. Yeah, and this actually came up. I was thinking about this last week when Chicharito uh, Hernandez was very honest in a mm-hmm. in a video. We want athletes. We ask them to be honest, and then when they are honest, sometimes giving us a window into their personality, then we criticize them. Right. Yeah, and I think with with Carly, like that is Carly, right? Like we know exactly what we're getting from her at all times, and yet the reaction is exactly the same every single time i'm just kind of like it's not i mean it's not productive on either side but also like we can't fault her for for letting us have a window into what her process is because that is her process it is literally it has not changed in years this kind of like work ethic you know jersey approach (laughs) to playing soccer and i mean the reaction is always the same i'm just like okay but that's that's who she is and that's like fundamentally as a player, that is what drives her. And it makes like, that's what works for her. Then, okay. Then that just kind of has to be a, a thing that we accept. Yeah. I, I think she's fascinating. And, and of all the players on this U S team this year, there's a lot that stand out to me, but I, I think seeing how this goes with her um, and what might be her last year with the team um, right. is going to be really yeah, interesting. I mean, I'm definitely in that same boat. Like I, I obviously get to see Carly play a fair amount, just being in New York City and and trying to go out to Sky Blue games. But you know, I think that she also kind of it's fascinating because I feel like a lot of people will come up only for one game. Like I can't tell you the number of times I saw her answer the same question on the road to the World Cup of like, "Oh, are you are you not satisfied about not playing?" Right? Like, first of all, she's being set up to give the same answer every single time, right? But second of all, I don't think that people always can read her sense of humor. Mm -hmm. She's extremely dry. And like, I feel like sometimes she'll get this like kind of smirk. Like, I know for a fact that you're not getting that I'm joking right now, (laughs) but she doesn't change. Like she will, she, she remains this constant person. And I just, I find it fascinating that we, no one has really adjusted (laughs) in this relationship. You mentioned Lynn Williams and granted Tobin Heath, not a hundred percent. Megan Rapino mm-hmm. appears not to be at a hundred percent. But Vladiko Andonovsky seems to like Lynn Williams. Um, what's, mm-hmm. what's going on there? Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting because she was, you know, she obviously got her first, first call up under Jill Ellis and then kind of fell out of favor and, I think it's interesting because she kind of is being asked to to maybe fill more of a pure nine kind of role in terms of, but again, I don't know if she's necessarily bringing something like radically new to this team. I think that she even has a lot of the same skill sets down the wing that they expected out of like Heather O'Reilly, for instance, right? Like, you know that she can put on a burst of speed, get in line, whip across him. And that has worked for this team in the past. And it, I mean, that first goal against Katie last night, that was essentially it minus the fact that she had to literally like flip her (laughs) shoe off because it got stomped on. Um, But Flacco does clearly rate what Williams can bring to this team. And I think it's just even, it's a different tool in that skill set 
for a potential front three, or, you know, even if you have to, to um, mess with the, the formation a little bit, I think it just means that there is a little more variety rather than, you know, what we saw. We, I think we always knew what we were getting out of that front uh, Rapino Morgan Heath lineup in France. And I think that he's a little more willing to say like, okay, maybe for this opponent, I need more speed on the swing and I need someone to be able to get in line at, you know, like a, a moment's notice. We are seeing essentially the same 4-3-3 under Vlatko as we saw under Jill Ellis. But in other places on the field, in your opinion, where do you think we have the best chance of seeing someone new crack into the starting lineup? Yeah, it's really, I'm going to be curious to kind of watch how much time Andy Sullivan gets mm-hmm. through this tournament. I think that that midfield, um, you know, we still have kind of the, the question of, okay, well, you still have Haran, Mewis, Ertz, and Lavelle. <laughs> There's right. only three spots. And then the question of, okay, well, how, how does Andy Sullivan kind of crack her way into that midfield? Um, I mean, I, I think that we might see a little more newness in terms of uh, a defensive line, but it is, I mean, I do think that probably right at the moment, the forwards are where there is kind of actually some potential Mm -hmm. um, to see some meaningful change simply because Alex Morgan being out right at the moment does give you an opportunity to really like flip through your options and try some new things. Whereas I, I think that there is kind of an easier chance to kind of maintain what that midfield is, what that defensive line looks like. I got a question about Megan Rapino because I remember when they won the World Cup in 2015, and she was actually really honest once in an interview with me before that Olympics. And obviously she got hurt between uh, the 2015 World Cup and the 2016 Olympics, didn't perform the way she wanted to at the Olympics. But I had asked her why, why it was that no women's World Cup winner had ever won the Olympic gold medal a year later. And, and she basically said, your life changes when you win the World Cup and you're not used to it and it's hard to keep your edge. Um, how do you feel about that statement and kind of where we see Megan Rapino in a soccer sense right now? Because she's become this cultural figure, mm-hmm. this touchstone. Um, right. Where is she in a soccer sense in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I think, you know, I, I spoke to her before the game um, when they had training on the field, just kind of about what Flacco coming in. Obviously, she has a relationship with him from, from NWSL, right? And what kind of that transition was like in terms of is he leaning on her more as a leader in the locker room? You know, it, does she have to do anything different? She was like, no, it's really the same, like, you know, and she described Vlaco now as a kid in a candy shop, essentially. Like, he's got the entire resources of U.S. soccer behind him now. But I think it's tough to judge, I guess, where she's at entirely because, A, she did not play a lot. I mean, she came on against Haiti, and I feel like the game kind of did immediately shift in a better direction yeah. for the U.S. national team. So I think that there really still is something to her being on the field for this team. But... I mean, it is definitely interesting to think about, like, obviously 2015 into 2016, her life changed in a lot of ways. And obviously an injury um, in Hawaii was a big part of that. But 
you know, from a general perspective, like if anyone's life has changed 2019 into 2020, mm. it's her. Right. But I also think that, you know, from all of the times I've talked to her over the past, you know, year really is, you know, the thing that she has kept saying is like, well, this is just who I am. Like, it's just me, but there's a lot more eyeballs on it now. So I am kind of curious to see, like, I, I think it's really a little too early to judge where she's at in terms of actual performance on the field. I think probably by the time she believes cup um, rolls around, like that's kind of where we're going to have a better sense, but there's definitely, I think more focus on her and, you know, obviously Carly Lloyd is getting a lot of question marks around her and if she's going to be starting and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I don't want to say like the team lives or dies by Rapino because that's not this team at all, but if she's stepping into a game against Haiti in Olympic qualifying and immediately the quality changes, then that to me is an indication that she can still have a very large impact on the performance of the U S national team. Um, I want to also ask about Alex Morgan. Have you noticed this, that Alex Morgan seems to be tweeting more recently showing that she's still training. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if she's doing that to sort of remind all of us that she's still in the picture or remind herself or, or what? Am I reading too much into this? I mean, I think it's probably just, you know, A, you're not getting the same kind of, like, visibility that you would if you were in the U.S. national team. So also, like, that's your that's your method of communication. I mean, I, I don't read a huge amount into it, but also I think that there is something in terms of, I mean, I remember the reaction Sydney LaRue got when she was still training with your Orlando Pide while pregnant, right? Like, I mm-hmm. think that there is still kind of this weird like half fascination, half like, oh my God, you're endangering your child, right? <laughs> um, so I think that there is also still just kind of like, a, I want to make this normal. Yeah. Maybe, you know, like I, I haven't spoken to her about it, but I mean, I certainly can't blame her for being like, I'm still working, right? Like yeah. just because I'm not with this team right now does not mean that I am not focused on making this roster on ensuring that I'm still getting reps on the things that I can do. And, and, you know, I've seen other professional athletes go through pregnancy and still like, I mean, Megan Duggan from USA hockey is also pregnant right at the moment. And literally her Instagram story is her workout every single day still. So I think that there is just kind of this athlete mentality (laughs) around, you know, the work doesn't stop even as I'm, I'm, you know, starting a family or any of this kind of stuff. So I think that that's, you know, it's almost kind of shades of Carly, right? Like this is the process and I'm going to give you a window into it. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about NWSL. Uh, I mentioned how much I enjoyed your coverage of the draft. Um, what are some of the, the major storylines for you right now as we head toward the start of the season? Yeah, I think the big things that I'm still looking at for NWSL are, are a much higher level in terms of uh, President Amanda Duffy is heading to Orlando Pride. We're mm-hmm. still waiting on a commissioner hire. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still waiting on media rights deals. There's still, you know, obviously the schedule has always kind of traditionally, unfortunately, come out in February for the league. But, you know, there is kind of a lot of bigger picture stuff that needs to get slotted into place. Um from an actual, you know, outcome of the draft into preseason, which starts in March, 
uh, I, I think now it's kind of a question of, okay, what other final roster moves are going to happen? Um, I think the big story of the offseason has been whatever Portland Thorns FC are going to in order to uh, catch up to the North Carolina Courage and really, you know, make a play at challenging them. Um, obviously, I followed Sky Blue through the draft, the work that they have done to kind of right the ship in 2019 compared to where they were, you know, at the 2019 draft where players were refusing to yeah. even show up. <laughs> um, that The turnaround of that club has been remarkable, and I think that they have made some pretty big moves um, in terms of players that they've added and, you know, what their draft day was like. So I think Thorns and Sky Blue are kind of the two teams that I'm most interested by um, over this offseason, but you know, I don't think Portland is done by any stretch of the imagination. So they're kind of a team that I'm still keeping an eye on. They're they're making some plays for some international players to bring in. And, you know, there's now this new allocation money right. <laughs> rule, which um, is still kind of, you know, we've gotten a little bit more transparency around it. But um, Portland still has, I think, a pretty solid amount of money left and can really use it um, to bring in and to attract some real international talent. So I think that's kind of the, the one big roster piece out of this offseason that we're still waiting to see the final results of. I realize that you and I both live in New York and we cover you know, the, the national perspective, not just New York, mm-hmm. but there is a real curiosity on my part now that Sky Blue is going to play in Red Bull Arena, which is very reachable by for people who live in New York City as opposed to where they played in the past. Um, how, what kind of attendance do you think we're looking at? Like, I mean, how especially compared to what they've done in the past. Yeah, I mean, they've had some pretty grim numbers out at Rutgers University. So I think that, you know, we saw, okay, they played two games, right, in 2019 at Red Bull, even mm-hmm. though they couldn't be in there for the full season. They got a couple tastes of, of what a crowd would look like. They got um, 9,000 something for that first one, 8,000 something for that second one, even though that second game was at, I think 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I was actually at it. It was an incredible atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. Like it actually feels like a professional soccer game. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, they have a certain target number that they need to hit in order to break even. I don't think that they're really going to have a problem breaking that from game to game. I think the question is now that it's in a spot that's a little more accessible to New York city, they have started to actually, you know, you can, you can see the change in their marketing perspective. Like the New York city skyline is on some graphics now. They've done an adult soccer camp in Brooklyn um, with players. And then you get to go out for a drink after like they're going to start chasing this market in a little more serious way. And I think that's only a good thing for them. And, you know, I think that there is still, this is going to get very inside baseball for New York city residents. There is still some work on the path that is going to probably prove to be a struggle for the first part of the season. But I, I think that having those games be in a more accessible place. Also, you get the boost of having a, she believes cup game there in March. Right. So, actually getting some cross marketing opportunities with um, with the U S national team and now having Carly Lloyd, Mal Pugh, Mitch Perth, Monty Dorsey, like they have players that they can put into this New York city market. If you can actually get some real local press, 
in addition to they've definitely upped coverage in New Jersey. So, I mean, I think that 8,000 is like a, is a pretty good consistent number is kind of like maybe a, a kind of the dream level. I think that they can definitely, I think they will probably hit five figures for a couple of games, at least this season, especially for, for bigger matches with, you know, when Orlando comes into town or um, Portland comes into town, like teams like that, that can also help, you know, boost the attendance numbers. But I think probably, you know, if they hit five or six um, thousand for, for like minimum across most games, like that's going to be mm-hmm. a very solid number for them. And I don't think that that's an impossible number for them to hit. You mentioned Mal Pugh. She was traded to Sky Blue. She was not included on this U.S. roster. Now, granted, it's a 20-player roster compared to 23 at the World Cup. But do you think she will do what it takes to make the roster for the Olympics? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily have the answer to that. I do think that within the U.S. national team system, they are, I think it almost feels like a reboot for her development as a player a little bit um, in terms of, you know, I think everybody kind of looked at what she was doing at the Spirit and was saying, okay, well, she's kind of hit this plateau, right, of development. Like, we expected her to be, you know, consider what she was doing in the 2016 Olympics. Yeah. And then where she was kind of at as a, as a professional player. And it's like, okay, well, you've kind of hit this plateau, maybe a fresh start, but also I think it's not that leaving her off this roster is trying to be like a tough love kick in the pants sort of thing. I think it's a chance to be like, we need to figure out how to get you to the level that you're going to be on this roster. And I think that that's also kind of the role of someone like Kate Markgraf coming in to try to figure out what are the development pieces that the team needs to have in order to have like real effective competition across every single one of these 20 spots to ensure that the team that's going to Tokyo is, really the best 20 not in terms of just like team chemistry but also you know the individual elements are all there as well so I think that you know and this is just me kind of speculating but I really do think that they are looking at Malpua as how do we how do we fix what your environment is in order to to give you the tools to, to really make a play for a roster spot instead of you know handing something to you where we're still kind of going, okay, you're not where you should be at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I find kind of crazy is you are the only journalist who traveled into Houston to cover this group stage of U.S. Women's National Team games. And, you know, I, I and probably a few others are planning to be out for the qualifying decider game for the Olympics, which is the semifinal mm-hmm. out in L.A. But... It's kind of crazy when you think about it. These are the world champions. Um, We had Susie Rack from The Guardian on the podcast a few weeks ago and talked a little bit about how there are more full-time women's soccer writers like her just in the last couple years over in England. Mm -hmm. Why do you think there aren't more full-time writers covering women's soccer in the U.S.? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Um, (laughs) I think that... I mean, this has kind of been the defining question about, I think, women's sports in general in the United States. And um, 
I mean, I think it's just, it's interesting. Like the athletic has, has decided to make the investment into women's soccer coverage. Right. Um, they have decided to also make the investment in a way where I am here in Houston and I will be in LA. And, you know, obviously I have at least one, she believes game, um, near me, but you know, travel is an important part of that and, and building relationships is an important part of that. And it's still coverage of, of women's soccer is still kind of this fragmented thing where you have soccer writers, general sports writers who kind of get, you know, one game or, or something assigned. And then a lot of people who are still kind of doing it part time. Um, I mean, I said this on an athletic podcast, but like I cannot even, I, I never want to go back and try to figure out how much money I actually spent trying to cover women's soccer for a number of years because I was firmly in the loss column by thousands of dollars. And I just never want to go back to figure out what that amount actually was. Um, but I think that it's still, you know, the infrastructure of what we have built for women's soccer is still lacking in terms of like that actual investment from, from mainstream coverage, like, you know, places like Bleacher Report and ESPN really like, obviously Graham Hayes, like we both know him really well. He covers how many different sports, Right. right? Like he's on so many different beats. And I think the question is, how do you get that infrastructure where you can support multiple full-time writers in women's sports? And it's really just, I mean, I I look at it and I still think that most of the decision makers at a higher editorial level are still men. And some of them certainly like the game and, and will try to figure out ways to cover it, but not in a way where you're making that upfront investment the way, for instance, like the athletic is with me, like they have decided, okay, we're going to invest in this position. And then it's eventually, you know, if this does work out, right, like they look at my metrics, is there a potential for growth? Does it make sense financially? And so far, like my metrics have been good, right? Like I like to say, like, I, I am paying for myself at this point. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that there is still this hesitance because there is still you're going to have upfront costs 100%, right. right? And it's also still a sport that needs growth and needs and needs the infrastructure part of it. So it's not necessarily an immediate reward situation where you just get to dump someone on women's soccer and it's going to immediately turn into, okay, well, we're, we're leading the coverage and we're doing all of these things and it's a huge financial win because that's not the landscape of the sport at this point. I know the answer to this question a little bit, but could you share a little bit of your story and, and how you got to the athletic? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a weird journey for me. Um, I get a couple of people every once in a while being like, how did you get to the athletic? And I'm like, you can't, my path is so bizarre. Like there's just no, there's no trying to learn a lesson from me necessarily. Um, I mean, I, I interned for the Boston breakers when I was in high school, um, back in WUSA days and then, you know, ended up, out of college working at a biotech part-time and um (laughs) it was really the 2011 world cup that got me back into it and just reached out to jeff kasufa equalizer soccer which is really like the big independent women's soccer site and being like how do i help right like i don't want to get paid right like how do i get myself into this space what do you need in boston there's still a team here um and just kind of fully worked my way up the food chain again, mostly at my own expense. Um, but from writing for women's soccer 
specific sites to then freelancing for, for mainstream places like Vice Sports and then um, eventually trying to get full-time into women's soccer space. There was a startup company um, getting getting pulled into that by Howard Megdahl. And then as that fell apart, making the leap onto the league side. So even before I, I worked for The Athletic, I ended up working for NWSL Media, which is not to be confused with the NWSL Media Association, but the actual league arm that did content and um, sales and all that kind of stuff that was out of the partnership between A&E and the league that started in 2017. So I worked my way up there, even like I came on as a content producer. By the end of that first season, had become social media manager. By the end of the second season had been promoted to the person who was leading content for the entire site app social the whole thing um and then as the split from a and e and the league happened um i think george who's now my editor at the athletic kind of saw this opportunity of like i remember him being like you seem like you are really dedicated to this and i never wanted to reach out before because i was like she's never going to leave the league but there is a little bit of uncertainty in terms of are these jobs going to go to to Chicago? Like my wife is actually a, a PhD student wrapping up her final year now at Fordham University in New York City, so I'm kind of stuck <laughs> where I am. Um, I don't I don't think I can make a move if a move is is happening. And then um, George is also calling to be like, you know, it is a full time job. We would want you to go to the World Cup. We want you to cover. U.S. national team and NWSL and women's soccer in general. Um, and we would trust you to kind of own what stories you want to tell. And it's hard to pass up that kind of offer as well. Not just because, okay, I get to go to France for a month, but um, I think that there is some power to going to a place like the athletic, which is a mainstream sports site and not just getting a woman's voice in there, but also women's sports coverage Um and, and proving that it has the right to exist with all of this other stuff. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's been like a perfect experience so far because every, every job is a job. Um, but I think that it has been really satisfying to um, get my voice in the mix at the athletic and really tell some good stories, not just about the world cup and, and the U S national team, but about the end of the as well. Realizing that, your particular story, it is sort of hard to tell someone who's young and wants to do what you do, go do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> what kind of advice would you have for any listeners who are young and would like to do what you do someday? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I'm just really hopeful that also as people, you know, graduate college and want to get into women's soccer, like that the job landscape does change for them. Um, I think that looking at what I've been able to do at the athletic, I'm hoping that other outlets look at that and say, okay, there is a reward there, even if it is still obviously a, a longer process than just adding a full-time role. But I think the the thing that I always try to tell people is, you know, I, I'm obviously just a writer now, but in terms of all of the, the things that I've done throughout covering women's soccer and throughout working in women's soccer, like I've been a photographer, I've done video, I've done social media, I write, I edit, like having, being willing to kind of leap into whatever role is needed at a given time, I think has, has come in really handy. And like, 
I mean, I still roll up to U.S. national team trainings with a camera. Hmm. I still try to take photos. I still try to post them. Like, even though it's not necessarily always going to translate into a story, though it has for the athletic, um, that's still a part of the coverage that I like to provide. And I think it provides something a little different than, than some other people. Um, so I think that just having a few different skills that you can lean on and, um, it gives you a little bit more fluidity in terms of if a role does open up, you can potentially put yourself in the running for that as opposed to just being like, okay, I'm a writer. I need to find a full-time job writing about women's soccer because right at the moment, those don't really exist. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter, Meg? So I'm at, at it's Meg Linehan, um, L-I-N-E-H-A-N. Um, same for Instagram as well, if anybody does want to see U.S. national team photos. I'm, I'm trying to be much better about that this year, actually. Nice. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, reading your stuff, being your colleague. Uh, I look forward, barring any major surprises, to seeing you out in L.A. for the semifinals. Meg Linehan, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Meg Linehan, as well as producer Harry Swartout, and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. And we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. See you next time.